Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser. Today's episode is on generals, generals that exhibited weird behavior in ancient Greece. First general we're going to look at is an Athenian, Alcibiades. He's actually one of the strangest people from ancient Greek history, and he's completely unknown to the general public. Even though there's been books about him, I actually think that his life story would make a great film. Athens was one of the cities that helped defeat the Persians. When the Persians invaded the Greek mainland in the so-called Second Persian War of 480 BC, the Athenians played a major role in defeating them. The Athenians had an extensive navy. Many cities contributed to the war effort, but it was the Athenians who stepped into a leadership role at the end of the Second Persian War. The Spartans had been an overall command of the forces resisting the Persian king Xerxes at the time, but now the Spartans sort of retreated to their own corner. The Athenians decided to create a new organization. It was a naval league. This is known as the Delian League, after the island of Delos, where the original agreement was made. The Delian League eventually had about 300 cities, cities on islands and on coastal areas of the Aegean Sea, and the Athenians got the cities to pay money to them. It started out as something that was supposed to be a voluntary contribution for a kind of federal navy. But in the long run, the Athenians turned it into something that came to be known as tribute. The Spartans would not join the Delian League. They did not trust Athenian motives. They had their own organization in the southern part of the Greek mainland, the area called the Peloponnese. So this is known today as the Peloponnesian League. So you can think of this as two power blocks. If you know anything about the 20th century Cold War, think of NATO versus the Warsaw Pact. And it was a Cold War at times, although there were actual outbreaks of violence between the two sides. It was at one of these, the Battle of Coronea in 446, that Alcibiades' father was killed. He was raised by his uncle Pericles. Pericles is far and away the most famous politician of Athenian democracy. What is still sometimes called a golden age of Athens is often connected to his name. Now, Athens had a democracy. It is often considered the first real democracy that we know of that's documented well. And in this democratic situation... The adult free men would vote in an assembly. They also would choose officials every year, and they had a board of 10 generals who were elected. This is kind of interesting to think of them electing their generals. But these 10 generals would share power in the year, and then they step down when the year is done, although it was possible to be re-elected. If you were talented and the people liked you, you could be re-elected as many times as the people would want you to be there. It could be quite dangerous to be a general, though. The Athenians were known for executing generals who lost battles. This was Pericles' official position in the city. He was one of the ten strategoi, as they were called. Alcibiades was raised in the house of his uncle Pericles. And there is an interesting anecdote, a story from the biography of Alcibiades, written in Roman times by the author Plutarch, stating that one day Pericles was leaving the house in the morning, and Alcibiades asked him where he was going, and Pericles told him, I have to go to the assembly today to persuade the men of Athens to vote for something that I want. And Alcibiades said to him, why don't you just do what you want, and you can explain it to the people later. And that is supposed to illustrate something about the personality of Alcibiades, that to him democracy was just a tool. It was something that he could use to aggrandize his own power. The biography states that Alcibiades, when he grew to adulthood, became a little bit of a rich playboy, you might say. Someone who had many admirers, both female and male. He did marry a woman by the name of Hippariti after he got into a, a brawl with her father. Years later, she tried to divorce him because of his many affairs, which wasn't necessarily something that Athenian men often had to worry about. Athenian men had many options in that regard. The story is that he actually marched into the courtroom, grabbed Hippariti, threw her over his shoulder, and walked out with her, and no one lifted a finger to stop him. Alcibiades was obviously very intelligent, very skilled, very cultured, 
He became very close with the philosopher Socrates. The story is that they were able to save each other's lives in different battles. Socrates saved Alcibiades at a battle at a place called Potidaea in northern Greece in 432 BC. And then a few years later, 424 BC, there was a battle at a place called Delium. This is when the Great Peloponnesian War had actually broken out. Alcibiades was able to save Socrates there. Alcibiades also sponsored shared racing teams in games like the Olympics. The Great Peloponnesian War broke out in 431 BC between Athens and Sparta and their respective groups of allies. The Spartans were the ones who declared war. According to Thucydides, who is our historian for the majority of the Peloponnesian War, the Spartans did it out of fear of the growth of Athenian power. Now, Alcibiades actually had a specific link to Sparta that's kind of interesting. In every Greek city, there would be somebody who would be a local representative of another town. This was a type of diplomacy they did, where somebody was the proxenos, as it was called, for another city. Alcibiades was actually proxenos of Sparta. Now, the first 10 years of the war, which included that battle at Delium that I described, eventually resulted in a draw and a truce. In 421 BC, something called the Peace of Nicias was agreed upon between Athens and Sparta, Nicias being another Athenian politician. Somebody becomes a major rival of Alcibiades. The fact that it's referred to today as the Peace of Nicias, and was referred to back then that way too, is something that really got under Alcibiades' skin because he felt that he should have been included in the negotiations more and that he should have been given more of the credit for it. Turned out it was a very shaky peace deal. It collapsed within just a few years, had a lot of problems. But part of the problem was that Alcibiades did everything he could to wreck this peace deal. When the Peloponnesian War resumed, this is where Alcibiades really starts to make a name for himself. Alcibiades came up with the idea of a new attack on an island called Milos. Melos had been attacked in the first phase of the war, but not very conclusively. It was a small island city in the group of islands called the Cyclades, which circled Delos. The Melians were attempting to stay neutral in the war as much as possible, but they had links to Sparta. So Alcibiades comes up with the idea that Melos should be attacked and should be forced to join the Delian League. So this happens in 416 BC. The Athenians ended up capturing the island. They voted a terrible punishment on the Melians. All the adult males were killed, all the women and children were sold into slavery, and the island of Melos was resettled with Athenian colonists. Alcibiades' next proposal is even more ambitious, a major military expedition to attack several cities on the island of Sicily to the west. They did get a request for help from one of the cities, Segesta, but many of the cities of Sicily were pro-Spartan, including its most powerful city, Syracuse. So Alcibiades proposes to the assembly that the Athenians send a major expedition to Sicily. Usually for a major expedition, the Athenians wouldn't send just one general. They wouldn't put that many troops and that much decision-making in the hands of just one man. So they decide they're going to send three of the strategoi. The other thing about the Athenian thinking in this regard is that they actually had no problem with putting people who didn't like each other into the position of sharing commands. So Alcibiades is one of the three generals that is chosen. But then the second one is Nicias, his great rival. And then the third one was a general named Lamachus, who was seen as kind of a balance between the two. Because Alcibiades was seen as the impetuous one, the impulsive one. And Nicias was seen as the calm, level-headed general. So they thought that these various personalities working together would actually lead to success. The morning that the expedition was due to set sail, hundreds of ships and thousands of soldiers and sailors, both Athenian and allied, the Athenians made a horrifying discovery. Many of the Greeks had statues called herms. 
Herms would be in front of houses or at street intersections. They're not exactly statues the way we would think of a statue, though. They were square stone pillars with only two parts of the god Hermes, hence the name Herm. The head of Hermes and the erect genitalia of Hermes. They were seen as good luck and fertility symbols. The Athenians discovered that almost every Herm in the city had been vandalized overnight. Now, there's only two places to vandalize on a Herm, so use your imagination here. What might seem to us to be a sort of hilarious prank was taken by the Athenians as a massive blasphemy against the god Hermes, but also as a potential sign that there was a plot afoot to overthrow the democracy itself. So people started to point fingers, people were hauled in for questioning by city authorities, and information got out that Alcibiades and his friends had gotten very intoxicated the night before. But there was also a story that Alcibiades and his friends had staged a mock ritual of something called the Eleusinian Mysteries, a very sacred set of religious rites that you had to be initiated into. So Alcibiades was confronted with these accusations. He knew that he was popular with the soldiers. So he demanded that if evidence could be produced to charge him with these crimes, these supposed crimes, that it should happen right away. He said, you should prosecute me immediately. The city authorities said that they did not have that information yet. So a decision is made to let the expedition depart on schedule. And Alcibiades is going to accompany Nicaeus and Lamachus as one of the three commanders of the expedition, just as they had originally planned. But he's informed that eventually there will be a trial when he returns. So the expedition sails on schedule. It makes its way to southern Italy and then down to Sicily. Before the Athenians can carry out any military operations, a messenger ship arrives from Athens. The messenger informs everyone that Alcibiades has in fact been charged with the mutilation of the Herms and with the staging of the mock ritual, and he had to return to Athens for trial. Now, no historian today can really say whether Alcibiades had any involvement. Alcibiades had many enemies, though. And his calculation was that they'll find a way to pin this on me, one way or the other. He tells the messenger that he will return to Athens, but that he wants to take his personal ship and follow the messenger ship. They agree to this, but then in southern Italy, he gives them the slip, so to speak. He escapes and makes his way to the Peloponnese. And this is where Alcibiades changes sides. He decides to move to the Spartan side in the war, shows up in Sparta, portrays himself as somebody who was greatly wronged by the Athenians. He gives the Spartans information on the Athenian battle plan for Sicily. According to Plutarch, he also adopted all things related to the Spartan lifestyle. So you think of the animal, the chameleon, how it changes to adapt to circumstances and for survival. The Athenian expedition ended up being completely defeated. Many of the soldiers were killed. Some were sold into slavery. Some were ransomed. The captives were badly treated. They were kept in a quarry in Syracuse, in water up to their waist, with no shade and given very little food and water. They began to get sick. They're going to the bathroom in the water. They're dying. There are corpses floating in the water. The Syracusans said, you're the ones who attacked us. These are the laws of war. Alcibiades is condemned to death back in Athens in absentia. But Sparta will not be a place that Alcibiades can stay at forever. He had to flee the city. And the story is that he had seduced a woman named Timaea. Timaea happened to be the wife of one of the two Spartan kings. A king named Argus, who had been away on campaign for a very long time. So the pregnancy and the birth of the baby could not be attributed to him. The rumor was that Alcibiades wanted to impregnate Timaea because he wanted to have a son become a king of Sparta. Timaea did give birth to a son, Leotychidas, but he was barred from inheriting the throne. Alcibiades would have been good as dead if he'd remained in Sparta, so he fled. This time he heads to Persian territory, over in Anatolia, or Turkey as we would call it today. 
He begins to meet with Persian officials, local governors, offering his assistance. Persians had stayed out of Greek affairs for many, many decades. But now the Persians begin to think that there might be a way to get involved in the war to their own advantage. The Persian king at the time was Darius II. This is how Alcibiades is going to begin to engineer a comeback, one of the more extraordinary reinventions of a political leader's fortunes seen in history. The defeat of the expedition to Sicily caused major divisions at home. For a brief period of about a year, the democracy was actually dismantled by a group of wealthy men, oligarchs. The most democratic Athenians were the men who served in the navy, so there are actually two Athenian governments for a period of time. Alcibiades used the possibility of Persian money and assistance, and he was actually taken back by the navy and restored to the generalship. That oligarchic government in Athens eventually imploded. Of course, the sentence of death that had been done in absentia was overturned at this point, and the money and assistance from Persia that he promised actually never materialized. It went to Sparta instead, and was one of the key things that enabled the Spartans to win the Great Peloponnesian War. But for a few more years, Alcibiades was able to take advantage of his restored position. He won a major naval battle against the Spartans at Kizikos. This is famous for the message that the Spartan survivors sent back home because they had lost their commander, Mindarus. But the message was, ships lost, Mindarus dead, men starving, we don't know what to do. Alcibiades had been made not just general, not just one of the board of ten generals, but for the first time in Athenian history, he was named as Strategos Autocrator commander-in-chief of all military forces. But eventually, bad luck caught up with Alcibiades. He left a captain in charge of a fleet while he went on to the shore of Anatolia to collect money from some of the communities there. He told his captain, do not engage the Spartan forces that we know are nearby. The captain disobeyed this order. The Athenian force was defeated near a place called Notian, and now Alcibiades is exiled again. The final battle between Sparta and Athens happened at a place called Egospotomy, or the Goat Rivers. The Athenians made a bad decision. They beached their warships and began to forage for food. Alcibiades was nearby. He had actually had a stronghold constructed as a getaway if he needed it. He decided to actually go out on a limb and try to help the Athenians. He warned the commanders at Egospotomy that they were sitting ducks, that they needed to move the fleet, that the Spartans were nearby. They told him to go away. They said that they were done with him. But they should have listened to him because the Spartan fleet swooped down on them, set fire to the Athenian ships. Athens was blockaded, the Athenians began to starve, and they surrendered in 404 BC. There's different versions of the story of the end of Alcibiades' life. One of them is that he was assassinated with the knowledge of the Persians, but also because of Agus, the Spartan king who he had wronged. There's another version, though, that Alcibiades was caught in yet another adulterous situation, and that the relatives of the woman cornered Alcibiades in a house, set fire to it. We'll probably never know the true story. We've also got two really crazy examples of Spartan leaders. One of them was Cleomenes. He was approached by a man named Aristagoras. Aristagoras was from the Greek city of Miletus over on the coast of what is now Turkey. And Aristagoras was trying to organize the Ionian revolt against the Persians. This is in 499 BC, so this is before even the first Persian War that ended in the Battle of Marathon. Aristagoras was on the Greek mainland trying to get help. He was trying to drum up support from Greek cities there. So he comes to Sparta. Because the Spartans, of course, have this amazing military reputation. Cleomenes asked Aristagoras where Miletus was exactly. So Aristagoras produced some kind of a map and pointed out where Miletus was and how far it was from Sparta. And Cleomenes said to Aristagoras, Stranger, get out of Sparta before sundown. 
The Spartans will never send an army that far from home. Well, Aristagoras didn't want to give up, so he came back and actually offered Cleomenes a bribe this time. He kept increasing the amount of the bribe. His daughter, Gorgo, who was a child at the time, is said to have turned to her dad and said, Father, send this stranger away. He will corrupt you. Gorgo eventually married Leonidas, the Spartan king who was killed at the Battle of Thermopylae, made famous in the movie 300. And Spartan women were supposed to be very outspoken, so that's a great example of that. Cleomenes fought many wars in the southern part of the Greek mainland called the Peloponnesus. He's credited with helping put together something we call today the Peloponnesian League. He led a Spartan army that defeated the people of the town of Argos at the Battle of Sepea. But this involved a trick. He actually did a sneak attack on the Argives while they were eating breakfast. A large number of Argives fled to a nearby sacred grove, which Cleomenes ordered to be set on fire, and 6,000 Argives burned to death. Because of this, the priest at the temple of Hera and Argos wouldn't let Cleomenes enter, so he had the priest flogged. And it began a downward spiral for Cleomenes. The Spartans actually said that Cleomenes went crazy because he liked to drink wine that was not mixed with any water to dilute it. In 491, got into a dispute with the other king, Demaratus, the two kings of Sparta, generals in the army, held by two different families. He found a way to get Demaratus deposed as king, and he bribed the oracle at Delphi, the Pythia, to back that up. But when it all became public knowledge, Cleomenes left Sparta, started to raise an army, as if he was planning to take over Sparta as a tyrant. This is something the Spartans had always been able to avoid. They let Cleomenes come back home, but now his behavior started to become increasingly erratic. There's stories that he roamed the streets of Sparta hitting people with his staff. So his own relatives had him confined. His legs were fastened to this wooden metal assembly, and he was kept in a jail cell. The Spartans had public slaves called helots. One helot was his watchman, or guard. Cleomenes ordered this helot to bring him a knife. When the helot hesitated, he began to threaten the helot and the helot's family, so he complied. When Cleomenes got a hold of the knife, he began to slash his own shins and thighs and began to cut lengthwise up his legs to his hips. And then he cut his own abdomen, cut his belly into strips. He did not have a son, so his younger brother Leonidas replaced him as king from that family. Another example is the Spartan general Pausanias. Pausanias is the nephew of Leonidas. When Leonidas died at the Battle of Thermopylae, he left a young son behind, but far too young to actually rule as king. So Pausanias became what we would call in later English or European history a regent. He's somebody from the family who was holding down the throne, so to speak. Pausanias became the hero of the Battle of Plataea. This is a more obscure battle, but it was the last major battle on the Greek mainland in the Second Persian War. So this is after Thermopylae, after the naval battle at Salamis. And this was a land battle that put an end to Persian ambitions of conquering the Greek mainland. Pausanias held the Spartan army back from the battle until he got the right signs from the god. And the way Greeks did this before a battle was to sacrifice animals and examine their entrails, their internal organs. He kept waiting, he kept having animals sacrificed until he got the signs that he was looking for. Some military historians today think that it was a strategic holding back of the Spartan elite troops until the right moment of battle. After the Second Persian War, allied Greek forces carried the battle into Persian territory. Pausanias went all the way to Byzantion. This is a town that will someday, much later in ancient history, become the city of Constantinople, today known as Istanbul. This is where his behavior started to slip. He began to dress like a Persian noble 
And there were widespread rumors that he was actually conspiring with the Persians. There's even a story that he wrote a letter to the Persian king Xerxes asking to marry his daughter. Pausanias also murdered a young girl named Cleonike. He got very interested in Cleonike. He arranged to have her sent to his room, but he fell asleep. The room was very dark and Cleonike came into the room, couldn't really see where she was going, was stumbling around, knocking things over. Pausanias woke up in a panic thinking that an assassin had come into his room. He grabbed his blade and stabbed her to death before he realized what he was doing. He later claimed that Cleonike was haunting him. He was eventually removed from his command of Greek forces at Byzantion. He returned to Sparta. Pausanias ended up seeking sanctuary in the temple of Athena, Athena of the Brazen House or Bronze House. Because he was in a temple, he had achieved sanctuary. So the Spartan leadership barricaded him inside and cut him off from supplies of food and water. So he began to starve to death. But they couldn't allow anyone to actually die within the temple. That would cause a kind of religious pollution or miasma, as the Greeks called it. So as he lay right on the verge of death, that's when they took down the barricade, carried him out of the temple so that he would not die within the temple precincts. And a later travel writer of the same name, Pausanias in Roman times, says that Pausanias' ghost haunted the region until they made two bronze statues of him to bind the spirit and put it to rest. Our last weird general is Demetrius. Demetrius the besieger, or Demetrius Polyorchetes, the son of an officer named Antigonus. Antigonus was one of the high-ranking officers in the army of Alexander the Great. He lost one eye at one point in his military career, so he got the nickname of Antigonus the One-Eyed or Antigonus Monophthalmus. After Alexander the Great died in Babylon in 323 BC, his generals and officers began to fight each other. They began a civil war, and there were many players in the game. Many of these generals began to call themselves kings in emulation of Alexander the Great, who had been king of Macedonia, just like his father Philip II before him. After winning some important battles, Antigonus and his son Demetrius were actually the first two to be hailed as kings by their troops. Demetrius was hailed as a god in the city of Athens. They built an altar at the spot where he stepped down from his chariot the first time he came to the city. As a living god, he definitely enjoyed his position, though, because he turned the temple called the Parthenon to the goddess Athena on the Acropolis of Athens into his own private den of iniquity. He had a large number of courtesans or prostitutes surrounding him, and he made the Athenians pay 250 talents, an enormous sum of money, just so they could have things like makeup, cosmetics, soap, and jewelry. Demetrius's military fortunes were a kind of hit and miss. His besieger title in some ways could be seen as ironic because some of his sieges failed. The most famous one was the siege of the main city on the Greek island of Rhodes. He built an enormous siege tower called the Helepolis or the City Taker, nine stories high, wheels that were 16 feet high. It took almost 3,500 men to crew this thing. It was mounted with catapults and crossbows and all kinds of weaponry, but it got stuck in the mud. It failed to do what it was designed to do. When Demetrius abandoned the siege, the people of Rhodes built a gigantic statue to the sun god Helios, an aspect of Apollo, in thanksgiving for their city being saved. This huge bronze statue is the famous Colossus of Rhodes, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's gone today. It collapsed in an earthquake. Demetrius had a number of other adventures. He did eventually become king of Macedonia. After the death of one of the successors of Alexander the Great, Cassander, Cassander left behind two sons, Antipater and Alexander. Antipater killed their mother, Thessaloniki. The other brother, Alexander, asked Demetrius for military assistance. 
And then when Alexander actually met him, he seemed to get second thoughts about that, tried to send him away, saying, oh, I don't really need your help after all. They had a banquet. Demetrius got up from the table to leave. Alexander panicked a little bit, wondering what was going on, so he got up from the table and started to follow after Demetrius. As Demetrius passed through the doorway, he turned to the bodyguards there and said, kill the man who follows me. But Demetrius had many enemies. He was eventually forced to flee Macedonia. His wife had taken poison. He made his way over to Syria and made one last attempt to power, but he was captured by Seleucus I, who imprisoned him, and Demetrius drank himself to death. Thanks to everyone for listening in today. Thanks to David at California Dingo Media for the logo and image. The music selections that you heard were Magical Gravitation and Sports Fanfare, both by RoyaltyFreeMusic.com. Hope to have you back for another installment of Ancient Weirdness with Gunnar Hauser.